I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news we think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, election, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. From So Say We All in San Diego, welcome to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, bringing you true stories from the live monthly showcases we produce throughout Southern California. I couldn't let February blow past without summoning up a show, even if it is a few days too late, because February is our anniversary month at So Say We All. We turned 14 this year to a packed house at Whistle Stop, another beautiful indicator that people are venturing back out into the post-quarantine world. So it was a very happy anniversary indeed. And to offset that joy, we received an email from a woman saying how she wasn't going to come to our shows anymore because there's too much profanity. That's always super sad to hear, and I would like to respond on air by saying from the depths of my very heart, donkey taint. Donkey taint. All right, on to upcoming events. Mark your calendars because there is a trove of artist opportunities coming up, some very quickly including our third collaboration with the Hausman Quartet as part of their Haydn Voyages series. That's where seven of our writers perform original works inspired by the seven last words, alongside the musicians performing the piece. It's an amazing and magical night. We're also accepting submissions for an upcoming collaboration with the Museum of Contemporary Arts, San Diego, MCASD, for stories inspired by the upcoming career retrospective of Celia Alvarez Munoz. Breaking the Binding. Both of those can be found on our website along with all pertinent details at sosayweallonline.com. While you're there, check out the themes for all of our upcoming San Diego VAMP showcases, but also our two now scheduled Los Angeles VAMP showcases. And we're also coming to the Bay Area, San Francisco, to produce a farewell storytelling showcase for the beloved Piano Fight venue. That's on March 15th, so if you're in the Bay Area or you have friends there, swing by and see us. All right, now for today's podcast. I, for you, have plucked February 2013's show, Dirty Talk Volume 2, out of the archives for your pleasure. And starting us off today is none other than our very own David Latham. Here's David. It came down to this. The manager that hired me gave me an ultimatum. Look, David, either you can talk like a girl and bring up your numbers, or I'm going to have to let you go. I'm sorry. I laughed because I had no idea how I could ever do a convincing female voice to keep my job as a phone sex worker. (laughs) It was 1988. I was 22 years old. And I'd been in San Diego maybe a month when I went on an interview for a phone sex operator. The month before, I had left New York City where I had been trying to find myself. Outside of a little bit of community college, I had no idea what I wanted to do with this phase of my life. The only constant was was that I looked like I was auditioning for the Ramones. (laughs) I thought the look really suited me, but the haircut and the holes in my jeans didn't exactly leave me with any job prospects. My options, my options were washing dishes, working in a record store, 
or maybe, maybe the exciting world of telemarketing. I always hated the idea of using the word sir or ma'am in any job. So I opted for the phone sex worker position. <laughs> this job did not require me to audition with a sexy monologue. I was hired solely because when they asked me if I could work graveyards, I said, yep. <laughs> Plus, there was no drug test. The company, the company ran late night television ads, videos of blonde, buxom young ladies talking to each other on the phone while playing the spin the bottle and drinking champagne. <laughs> the voiceover said, me and my friends are looking to speak with exciting men. <laughs> the calls only cost $3.99 for three minutes of exciting fun. So it was my duty as the operator to initiate exciting fun conversation with the callers. The callers, the callers were mostly guys um, calling in to speak to girls, and I, of course, am a guy, the only guy that worked there. So I dug down deep into my job faking skills, and I came up with this young, smoky drawl, actually making me sound kind of somewhat believable. What I picked up from the real girls I worked with in the office was that they could speak to these hordes of men without hardly ever having to get sexual. These calls are really like a bunch of first dates, talking about favorite TV shows, music, uh, where you live, how tall you are. Occasionally, some guy just wanted to talk about how swollen his balls were. <laughs> I was a 22-year-old red-blooded guy. I wanted to have sex without a telephone in my hand. So. For every 25 guys that were phoning in, there were actually a few girls calling in. And a couple of those few girls kept calling back to speak to me. All this was new to me. Coming, <laughs> coming of age, I suffered from acute low self-esteem. I had bad skin. I was an awkward, gangly-looking kid. I, I couldn't play sports. I didn't even understand sports. I was shunned by anyone remotely popular, especially the girls. I gravitated, I gravitated toward this other scene. I, I had long hair, and I, and I liked punk rock. Now, for my male voice on this job, I had chosen the moniker Joey. This was after my childhood idol, Joey Ramone. And with the attention of these girls, I was, I was Joey Ramone, <laughs> the unlikely desirable rock star. I went from having low self-esteem and absolutely no clue how to ever talk to girls, period, to being in a job where I was talking to girls about sex every night. <laughs> Some of them even asked me to meet them in person so we could do more than talk. But despite the rosy self-descriptions these girls gave me, I had no delusions. <laughs> I was pretty confident that if I met these girls in person, they would be hideous. But even besides that, the office had a rule, one single rule. We were to abide by the one single rule, do not ever, ever, under any circumstances, give out the address or location of the office, ever. Don't do that. Everything else was fair game, as long as we didn't break this rule. It was, it was in a frame sign on every desk. It was also etched across my brain. To meet any of these people in person would be phone sex jihad. 
I came to embrace this job, really. Um, I, I, like, I, like I was a radio talent, uh, people would tune into me and what I might say or do. These were just characters that I played, like, like putting on an apron um, that I would take on and off when I was going to go to work. I suspect that Rush Limbaugh, in real life, he wears Birkenstocks. <laughs> he masturbates to Rachel Maddow. <laughs> and he really enjoys NPR on the weekends. In my, in my female voice, I was Jennifer. This was after my pet cat, Jenny. <laughs> Jennifer, she looked just like me at the time, tall. Maybe 5'8", five 5'9", five without her heels on. Long dark hair, blue eyes, just like me. But of course, she wore a bra because her breasts were considerably larger. I was thinking maybe like a B or a C cup. Um, and I quickly made Jennifer's character very attracted to women because um, this made it easier for me to relate to. And, her, and as her voice may have suggested, she wasn't, she wasn't a prom queen, but she wasn't exactly paying, playing softball either. <laughs> so my biggest fan, or I should say Jennifer's, Jennifer's biggest fan was a guy named Todd. Whenever he called and I answered as Joey, Todd made it immediately clear to me that he thought I was a faggot. <laughs> Those were his exact words. I don't like you, Joey, because you're a faggot. <laughs> Todd would call in incessantly, especially on the weekend. He had horrible taste in music. He was into bands like Styx and Toto. <laughs> he loved movies with Chuck Norris. And don't even get Todd started on the WWF. <laughs> he believed Hulk Hogan was the Messiah. <laughs> now, I had known guys exactly like Todd for years. In elementary school, Todd was the same guy that never, never picked me for dodgeball. In junior high, he was the guy that stole my lunch out of my locker and ate it in front of me. By high school, Todd was the guy that threw a milk carton at me through the window of his Camaro. So meeting him years later, when he called into the phone sex line that I worked at, it was a goddamn miracle. <laughs> Sometimes just to rile Todd up, to rile Todd up, I would, I, I would use my joy voice to talk to Todd about how great an ass that Jennifer had. Sometimes, sometimes, I would tell Todd that Jennifer couldn't come to the phone because she was in the office taking a giant shit. <laughs> this pissed Todd off to no end. Because as much as we spoke, he never once crossed the line with any mention of sex or any indecency towards Jennifer. He was locked in the friend zone. What a chump. This was my revenge. Now, I got, used to t I got used to Todd calling me a faggot all the time. It, it was kind of like when you go into a liquor store and the guy behind the counter says, Hey, boss. Hello, chief. <laughs> so in Todd's world, in Todd's world, the worst thing you could be or call someone else was gay. And this made it all the more fun for me to tell the truth about Jennifer, about Joey, and about me, the truth. <laughs> Yeah, right, that's bullshit.
Todd said. Just let me talk to Jenny already. That's what I want to talk to you about, Todd. <laughs> there is no Jennifer. It's been me you've been talking to the whole time in this fake made-up voice I came up with to keep guys like you spending their money. <laughs> Nothing personal. <laughs> and then, in my Jennifer voice, I greeted him the same way I did every time he called. Oh, hi, Todd. <laughs> the line went quiet for a minute, then I heard Todd say, I ain't no faggot. <laughs> and he hung up. <laughs> there was a girl. There was a girl I would talk to pretty regularly and always about sex. Her name, her name was Sarah. I could tell Sarah was different from the other ones. It was how she carried herself in our conversations. She wasn't really interested in me telling her a bunch of nice guy stuff about how cute she sounded. I sensed I sensed that she was used to guys telling her how attractive she was all the time. She never felt the need to embellish her own self-description. It was only when I started saying things to her like, you sound pretty desperate, Sarah, <laughs> or why are you spending your money to talk to a bunch of weirdos? <laughs> and with that, she responded flirtatiously, I just want to talk to you, David. I started to envision Sarah as that popular girl in high school. Yes, she was a cheerleader. Yes, she went to her prom. She even had a husband, the same guy she went to the prom with. But she made it clear that she wasn't desperate. She was just bored and looking for kicks. I must admit, I was just as human as the next guy at 2 AM. So after too many months and so much dirty talk, she finally said, we should just meet and fuck already. She was right, we should. <laughs> she, she really was the exception to the kind of girls that normally called in, and she would be the exception to the one office rule. I told her to meet me at the AM PM. It was an Imperial and Euclid. <laughs> I told her, call the office line from the payphone, and from my second story office window, I could see the payphone under the streetlight. This was it. 20 minutes later, the private Lang rang in the office. It was Sarah looking out the window. I saw that she was everything she had described to me. The perfect girl next door type. Bingo. Awesome. In my best ransom exchange voice, <laughs> I said, go in the store and grab some wine coolers. <laughs> and I'll come meet you in the parking lot. We, we quickly got past our, our overdue in-person introduction, and maybe, maybe a half a wine cool later, we consummated what we had been talking about for months. I decided as long as I had her there, and I was at work, I figured I'd put her to use and give the callers an extra treat. <laughs> I handed her the receiver, and I let her have her breathing fill in for exciting fun. I remember thinking, Man, my quota must be jumping right now. <laughs> Later that morning, I heard the door unlock an hour earlier than expected. It all happened in slow motion. My boss spied the trail of clothes littering the office carpet, the empty wine coolers. The gig was up. 
the boss caught us both trying to recover our pants. I knew I'd be fired, but at that moment, I was, I was okay with it. <laughs> I think I had earned my retirement having done everything I could have hoped to get away with. Some jobs have perks, like, like Hawaiian shirt day or free pizza lunch Fridays, or maybe getting your picture in a frame for employee of the month. The perk here? The perk here was doing what every human being wanted to do. I had lost my fear of rejection. Yes, I had broken the golden rule, and I gave the whole secret up to our operation. Besides our location, the real secret, the real secret was that we were all just lonely people too. People that, that needed somebody to tell us that we were funny, that we sounded cute, that we seemed clever, that we were desired. Sure, the callers were paying for that service, but I was looking for it too. I might have been getting paid to do it, but I was just as desperate as Todd. David Latham. That was David Latham. And next up, we have Jennifer Jamal and her story, Ladies' Night. Here's Jennifer. My cousin Lila drives me through dark, tree-lined streets in Calabasas. We pass ranch-style mansions surrounded by high fences, stables, and barns. Equestrian chic. Old Hollywood money. We go through a birthday party. We're going to a birthday party party for Lila's boss, Madeline, a woman with roughly a year to live, if she's lucky. Madeline and her guests, friends from her support group, count stage four breast cancer, invasive cervical carcinoma, and advanced throat cancer as longtime and trusty companions. Should be a pretty good party. <laughs> I hear there's a stripper coming. I'm wearing a tight black v-neck t-shirt and a push-up bra, creating the kind of cleavage that begs for a tiny skier and three-inch heels. We walk through the door to a huge entrance hall with ceramic tile floors and a spiraling staircase. Music is playing at an 11 in the living room. Madeline ushers us in slowly with a big grin on her face, wearing a velour sweatsuit, a tasteful brunette wig, and a portable saline IV drip. She hands me a surgeon's mask with a deep bow, like a samurai presenting a sword. Party hats are cliche, don't you think? This is more festive. Then she hugged me, warm and tight. So tight I thought she might fall apart. Behind her, I see 10 women sitting on couches and chairs bent in a U-shape toward the center of the living room. Everybody's got a mask on, pulling them down only to sip tang laced with THC or take a hit off a joint. All are at least 20 years older than me, a rainbow of wigs and a few nurses in squeaky clean sneakers watching over their charges. Lila has prepped me for how ugly cancer is, but it still hits me really hard. Their skin looks mottled and papery. They have dark circles under their eyes. One woman has a circular tracheotomy scar practically bulging through her throat. I need to get high as fast as possible. I say him hello, my hellos and sit down on the couch next to cutesy throw pillows that say things like, a house is not a home without a horse. <laughs> the woman that with the trach scar hands me a joint. Lila has fetched me a glass of Tang THC. 
I down the juice and take two awkward hits on the joint and hand it to somebody else with cancer. Despite the circumstances, there's an energy throughout the room. Anticipation. <laughs> the stripper is due to arrive soon. I haven't been high very often at this point, but it's clear within a few minutes that I am inappropriately stoned, which pisses me off. This isn't fucking Coachella. These people take it to feel better. I was hoping to numb myself a little, but now I'm paranoid and vulnerable. Tits out, heels up, and a hole in the crotch of my target jeans. I look over at Lila, 18 years old, and so beautiful you want to punch her. Long and silky hair, green cat eyes, and lips always poised to break into a smile that suggests a private joke. She isn't trained like the other caregivers seated among us. She fell into her work because Madeline was a friend of her mother, and she needed a job while she went to school. Lila confounds me with her endless cheer in the face of so much sadness. Not confounds, really. She humbles me. She takes Madeline to the hospital every day for chemo, holds her while she vomits up her insides, and accompanies her to the support group held three times a week. When she asked me to go to this party, I agreed because Lila and I had been reconnecting lately, and time spent with her was one of the few things I really enjoyed. I'd graduated from Berkeley three months ago with grand plans to move to New York and become a journalist. But I'd only gotten as far as my mother's spare room in Long Beach. The highlight of my day was watching 90210 reruns on the Soap Network. <laughs> Call my eagerness to hang out with a bunch of dying women and a stripper journalistic curiosity. But I figured since Lila was such a good person, going to this party with her would make me a good person by association. There's a chorus of woo, and the stripper bursts through the door. He's dressed as a cop, complete with handcuffs and a nightstick. Section 219 of the penal code says you ladies are being too loud. <laughs> he looks a little phased by the scene, but rolls with it and sets up his strobe light. <laughs> so where is the birthday girl? We all point to Madeline, laughing on the couch next to Lila. He sidles over to her. Lila shifts the IV that snakes and coils over their forearms. He puts his hat on Madeline's head and starts to unbutton his shirt. Feel free to touch. <laughs> he looks exactly like every perfect body gym rat I've ever seen, except some kind of Middle Eastern. A generic version of Magic Mike, a swarthy Channing Tatum with five o'clock shadow on his chest. <laughs> the music seems to have gotten louder. He moves around, gyrating and shaking that thing in front of a few women. But, you know, like, gentle. Off comes his shirt. His nipples are large and brown, and he has those great Vs that some guys have when their stomachs taper down. Booty shorts go next. So he's dancing in front of us, but nothing but a G-string and Nikes. Still, there's a lot of showmanship, and I appreciate him for it. Out of nowhere, he holds his hand out to me. It's my turn to step up to the plate. I don't really mind. The center of attention is a position I've always sought out. Oh, all right. I take his hand and he pulls me off the couch, rougher than he's been with everybody else, probably because he realized he couldn't break me. Now we're conspirators, the life of the party people. He lays me down on a thick, expensive rug and hovers his body parallel over mine, doing push-ups and elaborate grinding moves that resemble upward-facing dog. 
He thrust his hip line against mine with like machine gunfire pace. Dollar bills rain down around us as the ladies whoop and giggle. Thoughts are starting to run together. Madeline seems to be quite the shit starter, kind of like me. Why would you want a stripper at potentially your last birthday party? This whole thing feels like some kind of fucked up make-a-wish. <laughs> I wonder what the rest of her bucket list looks like. You have to laugh, I guess. I mean, what else are you gonna do while you're waiting around to die? How long have I been tracing circles around his nipples? <laughs> Move to a new body part. He picks me up in one swift motion and puts me in the chair in the center of the room, then continues to move my hands over his abs and hips and ass. He smells like raspberry Smirnoff vodka. His skin is covered in body glitter, and it's now all over my cleavage. He puts his lips close to mine and lets our breath intermingle. The weed has hit me full force now. I'm afraid if I move too quickly, I'll fall out of the chair. What are you thinking about? Right, no. What kind of a question is that? He's probably told that's what women want to hear. Well, I... The woman on the end of the couch is going through chemo. That one has a fucking scar on her neck. Did you see it? We're all wearing masks. Why are we wearing masks? I mean, we could be sick too. We don't even know. His response to my little outburst is to smile, then turn around and give me the full fucking Monty. His butt has five o'clock shadow too. The music lulls as he shimmies his underwear back up, collects the clothes, and turns off the strobe light as we applaud his handiwork. He has a bag over his shoulder and scurries to the bathroom. Lila collects the remaining bills that litter the floor like a kid picking up candy after pinata breaks. She hands them to Madeline. The stripper returns looking very normal in a button-down and jeans. Madeline holds the money out to him and there's a pause, as if he's unsure whether or not she'll come to him. Then, spotting the cane at her feet, he moves forward and takes it from her, delicately, with both hands, as if he's being given a firefly. Before turning toward the door, he addresses up. I had a wonderful time tonight, ladies. You are a sweet group. We echo our thanks back to him and with that, he's gone. Madeline takes off her wig, totally bald except for a sparse collection of hair at her temples. Oh, it's hot in here. I just want you all to know this was by far the weirdest and best birthday I have ever had. I hear footsteps on the stairs, as he, and as he makes his way down to us, I realize with horror that Madeline's husband has been in the house the entire time. He doesn't say anything to us, but smiles this knowing kind of smile at his wife as he picks up a lone dollar bill off the carpet, sticks it into the back of his boxers, and saunters past us to the kitchen. <laughs> There's a whole world in that look. Decades of laughter and fighting and sex and loss. The way she gave me the mask, the way he just made that joke. I mean, we're all dying anyway. We may as well try to find something like that. Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Jamal. Jennifer Jamal. Next up, Holland Halzer with her story, Shit Got Real. Here's Holland. After waiting weeks for an apology, for him to come crawling back and making my friends call me to make sure my phone was working properly, I finally received a Dear Jane letter in the mail from my boyfriend, who I'd moved to Yuma for. 
and who I'd lost 50 pounds for. It was several pages long. For the first time in my life, I didn't have a fallback guy. I'd always had them lined up like little flannel-wearing bearded nesting dolls. <laughs> sure, I'd lost 50 pounds, but I'd plateaued and I had another 20 to go. I had to drop the rest ASAP because my ex was an artist. And before our breakup, I posed topless for him. And he had a huge oil-painted canvas hanging on his wall of my breasts and face. It would only be a matter of time before he found a new model, a skinnier one, with breasts that were too big for her frame. Breasts that didn't even make sense. Breasts that made you mad at God. <laughs> my emotions were operating like a game of Jenga each time I refreshed his MySpace page looking for one of his new models. I didn't fall apart, but I teetered. Nine o'clock on Saturday night and I'm in bed alone with carpal tunnel symptoms from masturbating. Not the sexual frustration kind of masturbating, but spiteful, hateful masturbating. I don't need you to have a good time. I've got 10 dicks right here, so deal with that. While flipping channels, I land on E. THS investigates fad diets. I stared at the screen mesmerized by all the fast fixes for fatness. Several years ago, I tried ephedrine when it was legal. Com combined with laxatives. I lost a lot of water weight and almost my job when I left work. <laughs> when I left work early multiple times due to explosive diarrhea. Surprised by the fact that stool softeners actually cause loose stools. I'd been too afraid to try any pills on the market since. I had a full-time teaching job now, and that stuff is not for people with shit to do. <laughs> I sat through all the diets explained on the show, none of which were affordable. One segment featured tapeworm, but I can't bring myself to buy something I can catch swimming in a lake for free. Winona Judd came on the screen. Not who I wanted to look like. But she lost more weight than I had. She was taking a diet pill called Ally. Ally was available at Target. <laughs> I threw on some sweat clothes and headed out. Buying diet pills is always embarrassing, kind of in the same way buying condoms is, except at least condoms mean you're getting some. Two girls, 17-ish, get in line behind me, and they're flawless and aware. In shorts and bikini tops at Target, <laughs> I wouldn't even wear that at the beach. <laughs> what are they buying? One G-string, one toothbrush, and a 24-pack of condoms? A 24-pack? Are they running a business? It's really confusing when they call things STDs and STIs. I mean, which is which, you know? 
Totally. <laughs> they were my birth weight and I was alone. <laughs> Buying diet pills. <laughs> diet pills on a Saturday night and in a state of panic I answered a fake phone call hello yeah I got them are you sure they're the ones you want oh it's okay you can pay me back yeah. okay yeah see you soon bye mom and they fake smiled at me Tearing open the package, I threw away the instructions. Instructions are for rookies. I knew how many pills to take a day and when to take them. There was a warning about consuming foods that were high in fat, but I don't eat fattening food anyway. It's Monday and school's back in session. I've been on Alley for two days and avoided fatty food, but my hormones are a mess. I was about to start my period. I stood on the playground feeling bloated and frumpy, like the before on every makeover show. <laughs> Lunch is approaching, and it's time to shame eat some Wendy's in my car. <laughs> I'm sitting in the shopping center parking lot, ducking down in the driver's seat and discreetly inhaling a Baconator <laughs> and fries and a shake. After a few deep, painful burps, I bury the evidence behind the driver's seat, and I'm back to work. I head off to the bathroom to pee on my 10-minute break. As soon as my ass hits the toilet seat, someone jiggles the doorknob. I need to hurry. My eyes focus on the crotch of my cotton underwear like I'm trying to find the image on a magic eye poster. It's... It's orange. But they're white. My pee is still yellow. But there's orange on the toilet paper, too. Where's this carrot-colored juice coming from? I dig through my purse and scan the warning packet, hoping for an, expla for an explanation. And there it was. Ally has a chemical in it that serves as a fat blocker. So when you consume something high in fat, it automatically drains it from your system. The drain being your asshole. The juice all over my panties was fat juice. The kind you see around a roast when you pull it out of the oven. The kind you throw away in the trash because it won't drain. The kind that stains. The Baconator was high in fat. So were the fries. I didn't have loose stools. I had anal leakage. I couldn't change or go home sick. I had a classroom to run. 
pawing at the toilet paper and unraveling it frantically like a hamster on a wheel. I blot myself until most of the orange disappears. And in this frenzy, it didn't occur to me that I was filling up the toilet with half a roll of toilet paper and that the odds of it going down successfully were about as good as me losing more than just water weight from this stupid fucking pill. The doorknob jiggles. I get it! Rather than completely flood the bathroom, I let go of my basic human need for sanitation and sink my hands into the coagulated water and started shoveling out the toilet paper like I was on Double Dare. With the, tra with the trash can full and the toilet flushed, I washed my hands and up to my elbows. I opened the door and faced Dave, the school's only male employee and heartthrob. Sorry about the delay. Someone made a big mess in there, but I cleaned it up so no one would have to. Looks like one of the kids got in there and had a little accident. He smiled and shut the door. I'd left the bathroom smelling like a combination of meatloaf, and vanilla air freshener. <laughs> Never in my whole life have I ever been more aware of my butthole. <laughs> I couldn't unknow the fact that underneath my tan pencil skirt, there was an oil leak. I'm the BP of Saguaro Elementary School. It was circle time, and the children gathered round on the carpet. I adorned my lap with my cardigan, wishing I had an extra one to sit on or a rubber sheet. I began, Dr. Seuss's, oh, the places you'll go. Oh, the places you'll have irony. I'm breezing through the pages, the children are engaged, but my stomach sounds like the audio from Black Hawk Down. I know it's just a matter of time before the levees break. And I reflood my panties once more with fat juice. I, I turn the page and read on. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. I wanted to cry. Not just a few tears. I wanted to ugly cry, like Claire Danes in my so-called life. My anus was slowly leaking and most likely forming a stain on my business casual attire. I was in a slump, because I wasn't going to lose those 20 pounds, and even if I did, I wasn't going to be happy. It wouldn't bring my ex back, not like this. A symphony of gas bubbles rang through my stomach and out my rear. I attempted to drown out the serenade. So be sure when you step, step with great care and great tact. 
Remember that life's a grip of balancing act. I squeezed my asshole and clenched my teeth. I need to get outside. These were lucky farts. But they were happening closer together, and that was not a good sign. I discreetly grabbed a chunk of pages and flipped to the end. The end! <laughs> I'm standing on the playground supervising a game of Duck, Duck, Goose, and I notice a jaundice collar drop on my leg. And it hits me. The leakage had surpassed my underwear and was heading down my legs. I did a couple of these flamingo poses because it's yoga time in my pencil skirt. Good news, if it was going down my legs, that probably meant it hadn't reached the back of my skirt. And then the farting increased. These were not lucky farts. Then it happened. That one fart. The one that sets you apart from everyone else who hasn't shit in their pants today. <laughs> My Hanes Her Way underwear felt like it had a load of mashed potatoes in them. I casually ran my hand across my backside. It had gone through. Did you know that you have a yellow spot on the back of your skirt? It's my boss. Really, I do? Huh. I must have sat in that yellow watercolor the kids were using earlier today. <laughs> Just another hazard of the job, right? She laughed and walked away. It was three o'clock, time for me to go. I made one last stop at the bathroom and did the only honorable thing a practical girl can do. Took off my panties, threw them in the trash, and drove home commando in a shit-stained pencil skirt. <laughs> I threw out the diet pills and ate whatever the fuck I wanted because I had to face the inevitable truth. As Dr. Seuss said, all alone, whether you like it or not, Alone will be something you'll be quite a lot. <laughs> Holland Holzer! The incomparable Holland Holzer. Next up, Juliet Escoria with her story, 400 Bucks a Night. Here's Juliet. I was sitting in a nightclub in the financial district. A gigantic man with a shaved head and a Mike Tyson-esque tattoo on his face was studying my bare feet with the light of his iPhone. Nice arch, he said, but you won't get a lot of money wearing a dress like that. Most of these girls don't dress so uh, fashionably, he said, clearly thinking of a socially acceptable way to say non-sluttily. You can go home if you want. I would not go home. I'd gone all out, flat ironing my hair, putting on a ton of makeup and a flimsy little slip dress, in short, dressing like I was going on a first date, during which I intended to put out. <laughs> I'd walk down the gravelly streets of lower Manhattan in strappy stilettos, which ate the heels down to pointy stubs in a few short blocks, and I'd borne the leers from the construction workers along the way. 
Furthermore, I managed to find the balls to make my way down here, past the fake wood paneling of the foyer, which had promptly destroyed any hopes I'd held um, that the cl this club would be high-end, which is what I'd been told. Then down the stairs, I was not scared off by the greasy smudges that had somehow found themselves blemishing the mirrored ceilings and walls, or the fact that the floor was so sticky that my steps made smacks as I walked. I told myself the stickiness was due to spilled semen, not soda. Sorry, reverse that. <laughs> I was going to stay and I was going to make money even if most of the other girls around me were wearing the kinds of bras and panties whose sole function was to be promptly removed. I didn't care what he said. I am bad at basic life skills like budgeting and I was living off financial aid checks that came twice a year so now I was completely and totally broke. Not because I needed to be, but because every semester those thousands of dollars rolled into my checking account and I found it necessary to boost the economy by buying books, makeup, dinners out, and clothing from little boutiques in Soho. Like a broke-ass grad student like myself even has the right to so much as enter a little boutique in Soho. Yeah, so I'm an idiot. I was currently living off oatmeal and dollar frozen burritos. Plus I had to figure out how to pay next month's rent and I had to do it fast. So I did what any resourceful young woman would do. I got on the gig section of Craigslist. <laughs> this particular section of Craigslist is a very special place where everything is not quite what it seems and nothing is good as it sounds. A headline that, that says, independent female looking for a partner actually translate to prostitute without pimp looking for her same to team up for safety reasons. <laughs> One says in all caps, humiliate yourself. This gig is actually totally non-sexual and is looking to attract people to sell comedy tickets in Times Square. <laughs> there was a time that I thought I wanted to be a dominatrix until I asked a friend in the business and she explained that the job entailed inserting enemas, pissing on people, giving hand jobs, and putting clothespins on old man balls. <laughs> My friend insisted I was much too sensitive to do such a job and at first I was insulted. But then she explained, Juliet, get real for a second. You got fired from that bottle service job because you couldn't stop body checking the drunk guys who tried to grope you, she said. Pissing on someone? I can see you doing that. <laughs> Touching an old man's balls? I'm pretty sure you'd rather clothespin your eyelids. Trust me, you wouldn't be able to put up with this shit. Sadly, she was right. I kind of also wanted to be an erotic nude model, a sugar baby, a stripper, to clean apartments naked and do basically everything else listed on the Craigslist gigs that involve being seedy, naked, and female, but isn't straight up prostitution. <laughs> These jobs seem like easy cash as well as an interesting experience, and I've always been into interesting experiences. So much so that my life has been filled with and punctuated by a whole stream of events that most people call bad decisions. <laughs> Things like dating someone who is fresh out of prison, smoking meth, driving down the freeway at 120 miles an hour while drunk at 6 a.m., and moving to New York City when I had 30 days sober and the only two people I knew there were junkies. Oh. Nick. Yes, I am impulsive. Yes, I've always had an intense and deep-rooted self-destructive streak. But these bad decisions had more to them than that. I'm an emotional ex extremist and experienced adventurer. I want to live as much as, and as intensely as I possibly can. As Iggy Pop says, I've got a lust for life. 
And as Iggy explains, a lust for life can be dangerous. But I also wasn't stupid. Self-destructive, yes. Suicidal, not anymore. And the aforementioned situations were potentially quite dangerous, the stuff of newspaper headlines and Dateline specials. And yes, while I do enjoy being sexualized and looked at as an object, I'm also a giant control freak, and I want to be able to manage who is doing this as well as what they think of me. I mean, sometimes I really enjoy being called a slut, but I am only comfortable being called this by a very special kind of man. <laughs> and in these Craigslist scenarios, there are no guarantees on any of the things that I cared about. There were simply too many variables. But I'd gotten clean almost exactly a year before, and now I couldn't even remember the last time I'd broken a law. I felt like a good girl. I felt boring. I had no idea who I was anymore. I wanted to go back to making bad decisions. I wanted to go back to having extreme experiences. There's only so much healthy living that can be done before healthy living turns painfully predictable. So when I saw an ad to work at a high-end foot fetish club that paid $400 a night and didn't involve touching above the knee, I jumped right on it. <laughs> this was the kind of sexual objectification of strange experiences that I could get into. I emailed Jeanette, who was listed as the contact at the bottom of the ad, and sent her my photo and phone number as requested. I also told her that my feet were size six and a half, and I had a freakishly high arch. She answered back immediately. <laughs> and now I was here. By the time I'd filled out the paperwork, a release form, and an agreement to not give out my phone number or meet any of the clients outside the club, my nervousness had lessened considerably. By the time the man inspected my feet, I was calm and I was in it. I was ready to have another weird experience. A group of Indian businessmen walked in. They looked scared, but I could feel their eyes sizing me up. It was an uncomfortable feeling because I knew I was being evaluated, but I had no idea if I measured up or even if I wanted to. As a group, they moved to the end of the bar, not talking yet to any of the women. The room filled up. As the men walked in, they looked us up and down in a way that made me feel like potential property. I would have preferred they just shined their phones in my feet. None of the men looked like people who I'd be okay with sexualizing me. Then a black guy with dreadlocks walked in, sat down next to me, and ordered a Heineken. After a little small talk, we went and sat together in a dark corner. The deal was this. You were supposed to collect $20 for every 15 minutes. The men were supposed to tip you on top of that. It was up to you to keep track of the time. At the end of the night, you tipped the club out a flat fee of $80. You got to keep whatever was left. The man handed me a 20 and wasted no time in taking off my shoes. He rubbed my feet against his face and moaned. I love it when they're a little moist, he said. <laughs> I didn't know my feet were still sweaty. I didn't know that having sweaty feet could be attractive. I loved finding out that people can be so fucking weird. <laughs> the human experience, it's vast and it's strange. He shoved my foot into his mouth, as much of it that would fit, and I was surprised by the wetness and also by how much of my foot he could fit in there. <laughs> his mouth was very big and soft and stretchy, and it seemed like he was trying to eat me. <laughs> I'd never had my foot that far in anyone's mouth before. He did some more weird shit, like rubbing my foot against his face, making me squash his nose with my toes. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be, like, moaning in pleasure or something. Mmm, I said to try it out. 
Soon enough, the 15 minutes were up. The guy stood and acted like nothing had happened. Have a good night, he said. He didn't leave a tip. I toweled off the dreadlock man's spit with dis disinfectant wipes, as instructed, and put my shoes back on. I expected to feel dirty or soiled in some way, but aside from feeling creepy about acting turned on, mostly I just felt curious. I had no idea that men wanted to treat my feet this way. Uh, where was I? Sorry. Well, I had no I desire to imagine all the boner popping going on. This whole thing wasn't half bad. The objectification seemed to be mostly confined to my feet, and also it was weird as hell. Unsure of what to do next, I stood next to a pole in the center of the dance floor, wishing I still drank so I had something to do with my hands. I knew time was money. Men kept looking at me, their eyes traveling from my face, down my body, and landing, yes, at my feet. But whenever I'd look at them, hoping to make eye contact, hoping to make some sort of connection, their eyes would quickly flit away as if they'd never been trained on me at all. Clearly, I was going to have to be aggressive. I spotted this bald guy in a suit who kind of reminded me of Charlotte's husband in Sex in the City, the one who isn't Kyle McLaughlin. He looked okay, not too slimy, and so I walked over to him. Hi, I said. I gave him the smile I make in pictures. I led him to a booth that was well lit and out in the open. His name was Bruce. When he asked mine, I told him the fake one I had prepared, which was Sylvia, as in Plath. He's, he said he liked my smile. He asked if I did this often, and when I said no, he acted surprised. I thought you must have coming up to me like that, he said. This made me proud of myself. I was acting like a hustler. Working with this guy was a lot easier. He asked me a lot of questions, which were easy to answer because I loved talking about myself. <laughs> While he did this, he held my feet, sometimes massaging them. Every once in a while, he would brush one of them against his cheek, but he never did anything truly surprising, like attempts to shove all of one in his mouth. <laughs> Actually, the whole thing was rather pleasant. Bruce also told me about himself. He lived in Chicago, but came here on business fairly often to sell medical supplies. He liked my dress and my long black hair. I could tell you were artsy, he said. He said artsy in the same way that most men might say multi-orgasmic. <laughs> Every 15 minutes, I asked for another $20. Each time he handed me a bill, I crumpled it into my purse. I felt rude, constantly checking the time and always asking for money. But that was why I was there, so that is what I did. Every 15 minutes, I asked for another $20. Oh, shit. <laughs> As we talked, I looked around at the rest of the nightclub. The lights were dim and red, and I felt like I was in a scene from Twin Peaks. All of the girls were with clients now. Sometimes they'd go behind the double doors in the back of the nightclub, in pairs or alone, with single or sometimes groups of men, which gave me the sneaking suspicion that this club wasn't entirely below the knee only. Almost all of the girls were blonde and tardy, leaving a girl who looked like myself who was there almost solely for voyeuristic reasons, to stick out like a sore thumb. The clients themselves, though, were varied. A couple of Hasidic Jews, the Indian businessmen, lots of men of all ethnicities and ages, most of them wearing suits. In the booth across from us, a very pretty girl was having her hair brushed very slowly by a very old man in a wheelchair. <laughs> she was smiling and giggling. After he was done brushing her hair, he took her feet in his lap and tickled them. She kicked her legs and shrieked. She looked like she was having a lot of fun. There was no money in this world that could get me to act like that. 
I was a little bit jealous. Toward the end of the night, Bruce said to me, let me buy you some shoes, whatever ones you want. Okay, I said. I was envisioning red-soled Louboutins, maybe a pair of Jimmy Choo's. At that point, I really didn't care about the no phone number exchange rule. A $2,000 pair of shoes could easily be stretched into two months' rent. I know this really good store, he whispered in a voice he probably thought was sexy. It's called DSW. <laughs> I gave him a fake phone number, but I was not surprised by his shitty little offer. This is a job I had found on Craigslist, after all and nothing on Craigslist is as good as it seems. I made 2.50 that night after tip out. A girl in the bathroom dressed like a naughty schoolgirl was complaining that it was so slow that night she'd only made $50. I asked her how much she normally made. 200, she said. 400 bucks my ass. Still, I was happy when I got a call back for the next week. This could be my thing. I could totally make money doing this. I could be a foot slut. I got dressed that night, just like I had the previous week. First my makeup, then my hair. The theme this time was bikinis, so it's easier to decide what to wear. But as I dug through my clothes, looking for my bikini, I started to think about standing there, wearing almost nothing this time, in the middle of that dance floor, as men looked at me over but couldn't bring themselves to meet my gaze with theirs. Julia Discoria. Julia Discoria. And next up, regaling us with her original story, Spine, it's Delia Knight. I have a thing for books. I was 10 years old, and Nathaniel was everything a crush-worthy 15-year-old should be. He had shaggy blonde hair, a lanky body, and a slightly crooked smile with dimples. He waved whenever he passed by and insisted that I call him Nate because only my mom calls me Nathaniel. <laughs> on the rare occasion my parents went out on a date night, they called Nate to babysit me. The first time he came over, we barely talked and watched TV until my bedtime. What now, he said. Well trying not to blush, my mom normally reads to me. Okay, what does she read? I ran upstairs to my bedroom, jumped into my bed, and passed him my Disney story anthology. Alice in Wonderland is my favorite. Okay, he nodded in my direction. He picked up the book and put it in his lap, opened the red cloth cover, and flipped until he found the story. Nate sat on the edge of my bed and kept sweeping that lock of hair behind his ear as he read. His finger followed each word as he read, slow and clunky. His voice stumbled over words he didn't recognize as his fingers hopped to the next page, following each word the way Alice followed the rabbit into the rabbit hole. Down, 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 would the fall ever come to an end? Suddenly, thump, thump. Down she came upon a heap of sticks and dry leaves, and the fall was over. As Nate read the last line, he brought his mingle, middle finger to his mouth, flicked his tongue against his fingertip, and planted it on the bottom of the page and flipped the page. He continued to read, and my face flushed, and my heart rate quickened, and I felt 
tingly. I was 10 and I had no idea what this was. All I knew was that I loved it. <laughs> I waited for his fingertip to reach his mouth again in preparation for the page flip, less concerned about Alice and what she ate and more concerned about the flipping of the page. Watching Nate each time, imagining his mouth against my mouth, his fingertips reaching out to hold my hand, so Alice got up and ran off thinking what a wonderful dream it had been all on a summer, happy summer day, the end. Nate turned off my light and left the door slightly cracked so the light from the hall streamed in. I sat on the edge of my bed with the weight of the anthology in my lap. I licked my own finger and turned pages. In junior high, I hung out in the school library. I was obsessed with Encyclopedia Britannica. I licked my finger and turned the pages. Short bursts of knowledge, oranges, Ohio, orangutans, I followed with my finger until the bell rang, signaling the end of lunch. But in high school, I had my first real crush. Ryan was a grade below me and played the piano. He came into my homeroom, the choir room, to practice his piano playing. I was enchanted by the way his hands moved across the keys. One lunch period, he was in the library. I watched him, four books open on the table in front of him. One hand moved across words on the page, the other scrawled notes in a spiral notebook. I sat the entire lunch period peeping from behind a book I was pretending to read. Penicillin, Penguins, Pennsylvania. I watched as he mouthed the words, licked his finger, and turned pages. I pulled out a notebook, opened it in front of me, scrawling nonsense and doodling while my left hand was in my lap, my fingers rubbing against the crotch of my jeans. For college, I moved far, far away from home and sunk into anonymity. I declared a theater major and spent my days in a classroom pretending I was anyone but myself a wheelchair-bound drug addict, fretting grandmother, a tree. <laughs> when I wasn't swaying my branches, I spent a lot of time in the Love Library at San Diego State. It was the only remedy for my homesickness. Tens of thousands of hardcover books and plenty of places to hide with a book in your lap. No one knew who I was, so I cultivated a library Lolita persona. I was empowered as Lolita, and there is no shortage of college boys willing to fuck in public. <laughs> I would lead a guy to the love library. I'd wear a skirt with nothing underneath and heels. I'd lead him to the fourth floor, which was consistently vacant, and ask him to read anything to me. Pull a book off the shelf. Pick a page. Read it out loud. <laughs> I'd stare at him, my hand moving under my skirt or above along my low-cut shirt, waiting for him to turn the page or look up from his book. In the library with all those books, I allowed myself to be seen. After college, I was the Goldilocks of fetishes. Going to public libraries wasn't quite right. Too transactional. Barnes and Noble, too pristine used bookstores. <laughs> that 
that's where I found what I was looking for. Books that were worn, that told stories besides the ones between the covers. I sit in my parked car across the street from Adams Avenue Bookstore, listening to the rain drum against the roof. I stare at the people going in and out of the bookstore, shaking out umbrellas, pulling their coats up over their heads, wet. Every single person unable to escape the wetness. I've sat here before, wishing I had the balls to just go in. I dart out of the car and shake off the rain before I walk in the bookstore. Adams Avenue Bookstore smells like sawdust and well-worn pages. It has big comfy chairs, books are piled onto every flat surface, and there's nowhere to hide. I saw him as soon as I walked in. Tall, shaved head, glasses. Whatever he was reading brought a smile to his face. Dimples. <laughs> I casually browsed near him, picking up books from shelves, not allowing myself to turn pages, for fear, for fear my knees would buckle under me. We made eye contact and smiled at each other. He picked up an ancient copy of Fahrenheit 451, the cover peeling away from the spine. He ran his finger over the spine, flicking the flap back and forth. It's a classic. Yeah, one of my favorites. I've never read it. What's your favorite part? He flipped open the book. Let me see if I can find it. He flipped pages. Here it is, he said. He took a moment and smelled the center of the book. I love the way old books smell. Uh-huh. He should put his face in my lap. The moon there and the light of the moon caused by what? By the sun, of course. And what lights the sun? Its own fire. And the sun goes on day after day, burning and burning. I felt flush, first ripple of an orgasm, his voice deep, authentic, honest. The way he said burning ricocheted and hit every soft spot in my body. I wanted his hands on my body, flipping my pages. The sun burned every day. It burned time. The world rushed in in a circle and turned its axis, and time was busy burning the years. He brought his finger to his mouth and looked at me. His tongue moved around the tip of his finger, and slowly he moved his finger away, tugging his bottom lip to reveal a row of perfectly straight teeth. Somewhere in the saving and putting away had to begin again, and someone had to do the saving and keeping. He took his saliva moistened finger, planted it on the page, and turned it slowly. I bit my bottom lip, and men with matches. The world is full of men with matches, full of burning of all types and sizes. My eyes fluttered open. He stared at me, knowing goddamn well what had happened. <laughs> we smiled at each other. I'm pretty sure that's my favorite part, too. <laughs>
That was Delia Knight. And rounding out the show, it's a me, Justin Hudnall, with a story I did titled Tricks of the Trade. Here is me. It's been a real hard couple of weeks leading up to my 27th birthday in South Sudan. Coworker of mine nearly bled to death after two men tried to murder him in our compound. A splinter in one of the wood clubs they were swinging at him got hammered into my left eye during that same attack, and now there's this big floating ball of nothing hovering where I used to see, and it would be there forever. Happy birthday to <laughs> me. The bravery that had come with ignorance was also gone. The moment I believed that my time was up, I saw how everybody does actually indeed die alone, and surviving did absolutely nothing to change this opinion. <laughs> Our UNICEF country director for Sudan sent around a vague email commending the bravery of those involved in the incident. That's what they call it when we die or get maimed, by the way, a critical incident. And then they wanted to go away because it makes them look bad. And maybe it was because, maybe it was just my imagination, or, but it seemed to me that my coworkers got uncomfortable whenever I came around after the critical incident. Like I was a reminder of what could happen anytime, anywhere, if somebody just took the time to get angry enough to do something about it. The all-day, everyday confinement between either the concrete walls of our office or our not-so-safe house with the same dozen people was starting to do my head in. I've been coping just fine until my body demanded what it always does when, it's, when I'm faced with imminent mortality, procreation, or at least the motions that could lead to it. <laughs> Y'all know, a warm body that one could pour its rage and fear into and be absolved through orgasm, the baptism of mutual fluids, somebody to let me be a slobbering animal that felt everything simply in base fucking. <laughs> there was just nobody in my world I could fuck. My Australian lady friend, Jo, was the closest contender, and our relationship had already been sealed, though. She'd assigned me the role of her fake gay bestie, her words, and the space between Jo's legs may as well have been as vacant of genitals as a Barbie doll's for all the sexual chemistry we had together. <laughs> Romantic entanglement with the locals was forcefully discouraged, which left sex for we aid workers and peacekeepers to be sorted out with our very small and very incestuous community. But between companies of Russian anti-mine specialists and Indian and Bengali peacekeepers, the expatriate gender balance in South Sudan resembled Alaska. <laughs> Joe did the work for me and summarized her, se her sexual prospects as one of the only few women in country this way. Well, the odds are good, but the goods are really odd. <laughs> So far during her stay in South Sudan, specifically Juba, she'd had nothing to show for her love life but a violent yeast infection <laughs> given to her by a half-black Englishman who went off and cheated on her while she was laying sick with fever in his own tent. And now, on top of it all, it was February. Somebody told me that the new air word for February in Sudan was the same as their word for fire, and if it wasn't true, it fucking should have been. <laughs> There's this thing called the equator. It's called opposite town. Population me. It had been hot before February. Stupefying hot, in fact, but this shit was just mean. I had to lubricate the inside of my nose with Vaseline just to pick it. 
and I had to pick it in order to breathe. All of that dust and dried blood created these very complex crystalline sculptures deep up inside the sinuses that were really, truly almost beautiful in their complexity and yet terrifying in their discovery. Oh, this is how depression starts, Justin. Miserable, scared, alone during a very vulnerable time. That's what Joe meant. Somehow having a birthday go uncelebrated still managed to make me sad even though it was the least of my troubles. But Joe, God bless her, she understood this. We are not going to let it pass like every other day here with a bottle of shitty wine and travel scrabble. And not one to make empty statements, Joe, she had a plan. The American consulate, they had the only swimming pool in all of South Sudan. The amount of geography covering more than Western Europe. And they were having a pool party, the clever fellows as a ploy to bring all the women to Juba to them. <laughs> Joe was one such woman, and I was her chaperone. She insisted that this was all we would need to get through governmental security, and she was right. <laughs> she talked Marcio, our security officer, into giving us a ride there, but he would not come inside. Come get a suntan, Marcio. Find a yank to give you a little handy or a blowy. And Marcio chuckled as Joe's flattery, but he declined. He conceded that Americans did make good soldiers, but he did not want them for his playmates. In his eyes and words, they could be sloppy, and that could lead to a very awkward conflict with his job as the security specialist who kept us all alive. <laughs> there were a few local Dinka security guards who were checking names against a guest list at the party's gate, but we were both ushered right past without question once Joe approached. The consulate unfolded on the other side of that wall, like a Motel 6 spread out entirely across one single story. Spacious, interconnecting, air-conditioned bungalows formed natural walkways and gardens. They all led to this large wood and stone bungalow in the back, lit by wrought iron electric lamps that shaded a bar. Big fan. And there, ringed by the patio chairs and blankets spread out on the hot, porous concrete, gleamed that prized swimming pool. Nothing bigger than a suburban backyard watering hole. But there were maybe 50 half-naked people in it. And this was the largest single gathering of people without malnutrition that I'd seen in months. <laughs> By the time we got there, the water had turned gray from the dust that had washed off those bodies. And, and some of those, actually countable on at least two or three pairs of hands, belonged to women. And I'd forgotten how an incredible thing the body of a young woman was. I'd begun to believe that the whole of humanity was made out of European men's pot bellies and the wrinkles of ancient Ethiopian women. But now here, here, oh behold, was a young Peruvian peacekeeper being thrown, giggling, squealing in fact, into the water. And a red-headed Irish woman from the World Food Program crawled over to a beach towel to sun herself. It was a country club shit show in the middle of North Africa's backwater, and I would have beaten anyone here tonight with a fucking club if you tried to take it from me. <laughs> I, would, uh, I was offered a beer, which turned into five, is as per usual when I drink. None of the beers are all the beers. That's my genetic motto. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> but I was in good company, at least. 
They had to fish out the empty bottles of Tusker lager from the pool with a net at least once an hour. And as I sat there taking all of this in through the softer focus of a drunken lens, it was so easy to forget for me that on the other side of this very tall, very deep wall of concertina wire-topped concrete that enclosed our little romp, one of the poorest countries in the world was scrounging for food and water, which of course was the entire point of having the party in the first place, to forget. I tried talking to some of the girls, but found myself all of a sudden very newly shy. I smelled the stench of my own neediness. I was preemptively embarrassed by it. All that glistening skin, all that nerd-honed wit stored up in my brain, water, water everywhere, and I'd gone hydrophobic. <laughs> I totally froze. And I was too ashamed to ask for the attention that the living just take. So it was a relief for me when this lanky Midwesterner about my age asked if I was an American and then introduced himself as Latham when I said I was. He had this rolling drawl that evoked for me this kind of young, pre-radioactive John Wayne. <laughs> and then he volunteered to me that he had been a U.S. Army helicopter pilot in Iraq before being seconded to the State Department in South Sudan. And in the very succinct conversation that followed for us, he, I learned from Latham that, A, he just flew transport helos in the war, but his brother piloted attack choppers and killed people every day and fucking loved it. Spent a portion of his childhood growing up in South America where he learned Spanish but, quote, still couldn't speak Mexican to save my life. <laughs> Had the opportunity, lucky boy, to shoot a burglar in his backyard once with a shotgun, and his dad made him go out and drag the body in afterwards like it was a pheasant. <laughs> and he just arrived in Juba the day prior and would remain there for an entire year, a government tour of duty, and he was already very, very concerned about finding women who would let him sleep with them. Iraq was bad enough, man, but my porn collection is spent and memorized, and I can't go another fucking year like that. <laughs> Latham interrupted his worries very briefly to wave over a man, short and stocky, but handsome in a way that I'd want to be if I were a dad. <laughs> that was Scott. Scott was from Washington State. Scott's face sported large splotches of bleach-white skin, the texture of uncooked pretzel dough, over his arms and legs also. He explained without my asking that he had been caught downwind of an Iraqi chemical plant during the first Gulf War, right about the time the U.S. Air Force blew it to shit. The resulting gas cloud had melted the top two layers of exposed flesh wherever the mist settled. All he said was, <laughs> when we screw up, we screw up big. So as compensation, Scott received 70% disability in a job in Washington, where a supervisor very promptly told him to go spend a vacation year in Juba as a defense analyst. <laughs> and this was Scott's last time in country, last 16 hours, and Latham, his replacement. So the three of us, we pulled up chairs poolside and a crate of beer, all for ourselves, and I asked Scott how he felt about returning to the land of cold beer and indifferent countrymen. He said the longer he had been deployed, the more he hated being abroad. But at the same time, he didn't know what else he could do anymore. It was too late for him. Especially, he gestured, you know, with the face. So most of the party by then was putting their clothes on around, and dinner was waiting for them back at their respective compounds all over Juba, and curfew was rapidly approaching, which was a very serious matter. So Joe came over and let me know that our car had come, but I had told her to let go 
Go ahead, without me. I'd be fine, because I was drunk. And I was content to stay that way with men who had been in dangerous places and behaved bravely. Because at that time, I rationalized that accepting me into their company made me braver by association, and I needed more than anything else at that goddamn moment to feel brave. So we three talked well into the night about Juba's strategic vulnerability, the impossibility of evacuating anyone if the war restarted, which we all expected any day, any moment. We lamented how awful it would feel to be left behind watching one's entire illusion of security just fly away without them. And we did not consider that we might be projecting all of our insecurities into scenarios that were really metaphors for our current emotional state. It was past midnight when I finally decided that I actually wanted my bed. Scott insisted that I stay at the compound, but I decided, no, I can walk it. I had an impeccable sense of direction. <laughs> After all, I'd been living like a veal calf sandwiched between two different pins for the past months. It made no difference to me whatsoever. I was prepared. That's how soused I was. So prepared. Neither did the lack of the moon or the incalculable darkness between hither and thither. And finally, Scott intervened. He let me have my speech and said, sure, sure. No, I believe you. You can walk it, man. You can walk it. You could also get shot in the fucking face the minute you go outside that gate. I'm not going to try to stop you. I'm just saying I wouldn't do it. Now, coming from somebody who was much more experienced with danger than myself, this was a very effective argument. <laughs> Latham piped in. He said, what the hell do you have to do that's so important that you want to run out into this night plastered? And for some reason, probably the same reason I thought I could find my way home, I made the terrible mistake of saying, it's my birthday. <laughs> that's exactly the thing you never want to say to men who don't know how to celebrate without somebody getting hurt. Scott bolted straight upright to retrieve a bottle of vodka and three glasses from inside the bungalow, and then he poured a round of shots for my birthday, and then another shot to celebrate Latham's arrival, and then, at our insistence, another shot to celebrate his coming departure. And then we all got quiet for a while. <laughs> Scott was the first to break a silence. He stood up and declared, I have to take a dump. <laughs> this would be a dump from which he would not return. <laughs> Eventually, Latham and I, we caught on, and we wobbled through the corridors of the Motel 6 into his room, where I pitched myself straight through the mosquito netting into the extra bed in his room, and I watched the ceiling pirouette above me. Latham sat down on his bunk some three feet away, and he looked at me thoughtfully, and he said, hey, how often do you jerk off out here? And I told him that for the first few weeks, I was an athlete at jerking off. But after a while, my imagination just completely failed me. This was a period of going through the motions after that for me, and then just for lack of anything better to do, and eventually I just gave up and stopped entirely because I saddened myself. <laughs> and because I believe in paying it forward, I noticed I had visibly depressed Latham. But Latham was a real soldier, and soldiers know nothing if not perseverance in the face of hardship. And that's when our conversation took a corner. <laughs> hey, how big are you, dude? 
I had a girlfriend who measured one, so I told him. And then he asked me to prove it. And that was the first time in my entire life that I admitted to being too drunk to sustain an erection and did not feel one goddamn ounce of shame about it. <laughs> not to be deterred, Latham was willing to work with me. He asked if I'd ever done a circle jerk and then explained his reasoning before I could even answer him. He goes, you know, sometimes my buddy and I in Iraq, we'd help each other out. And I confessed that I had never had such a good friend in all my goddamn life. <laughs> oh, he murmured, you know, he was visibly crestfallen. And then he said, hey, let's just keep this, you know, between ourselves then. And of course I agreed. So this period of awkward silence followed, as it always does after a rejection has been made. And I can't stand watching people embarrassed. I can't stand it. It's the worst thing for me. So I said the first thing that popped into my mind, well, thanks for a happy birthday. <laughs> and then I realized, stripped down to my boxer shorts, Lying in a bed four feet away, the echo of my refusal, sounding teasing and insincere even to my own ears, I was thinking, what about me did not suggest I would be the kind of friend who could jerk a buddy off? <laughs> and you know what? I wished I was. Because here we were, two young men in the peak of our youth, adventuring in an exciting and dangerous place very far from home, troubled by all of the many and varied things we'd seen and primed to have a heated love affair, and the best we could do was each other. <laughs> that was not how the story had been sold to us. I would have liked to have been able to give him some peace. I knew how badly I needed it myself, and, you know, at least his problem had a very clear solution. The problem is, I've just never seen a dick that didn't bum me out. Not even my own. It's just how I'm built. I can't help it, I'm scared of them. So I just rolled over and I pretended to sleep until I finally actually did. So when I came to, <laughs> when I came to, some hours later, uh, my eyes opened to Latham shambling into the bathroom. His laptop was tucked under his arm the way that swimmers will carry their towels. And very soon, a sound issued from behind the door like a cat that was violently lapping at a dish of milk. <laughs> Scott knocked on the door uh, then, around the same time, let himself in after finally returning from his dump he'd taken nine hours prior. <laughs> And he had a, a pitcher of Bloody Mary mix in his hand. And he goes, my head is split, bro. I need to borrow that vodka to mix up that medicine. So I handed him the bottle at the same time that Latham reemerged. And he looks at me, and he's kind of startled that I'm dressed and standing. And he goes, oh, are you, are you leaving, dude? Yeah, yeah, I said, I, 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 gotta, I better get back to it. So we just shrugged. We shook hands. I knew he had not washed his. <laughs> we both knew that. And we looked each other in the eye while we did it. Because this was a handshake to seal a pact. 
On the walk home, right then under that too bright, too hot sun, I very much saw it plainly that I would have never possibly made it if I'd actually tried to leave the night before. I was just this ignorant, dumb kid alone in this darkness that I'd gone and purposefully lost myself in. No. No, 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 no. It's always better to huddle together until you know the daylight's coming back. Thank you. That was me, Justin Hudnall, and that concludes this episode of the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, Dirty Talk, Volume 2, recorded at our beloved Whistle Stop in South Park, San Diego, back in February of 2013. Your storytellers once again were David Latham, Jennifer Jamal, Holland Halzer, Julia Escoria, Delia Knight, and myself, Justin Hudnall. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you haven't already, and if you would, please leave us a rating and a review to make those robots like us more. If you want to learn about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows that you, yes, you, could be a part of, and more, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our program director. Joe Hudak is production manager. Brent Hanafy is our social media manager. And our original music you've heard sprinkled throughout is by our beloved friend, Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, and our outro music, courtesy of 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebus Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We would love it if you would become one of those members. Just hop on over to sosayweallonline.com slash support and sign up at any level of monthly giving to get invites to parties, merch, and more. Thanks so much for listening. Don't be a stranger, and let's talk again soon. <laughs>